0: Welcome back to the program. We spent a lot of time talking about technological change, about the impact that everything from our phones and the internet to self driving cars are having on the way we live. The fact is that the single greatest factor in changing the way we live may be the demographic changes taking place right in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. Boomers are not so gracefully aging and retiring, millennials are trying to find and take their place in the world. And as many of the ads during the recent Super Bowl showed us, we look different as a nation. Our values and what constitutes a family are still changing rapidly. This would all be just very interesting were it not for the fact that policymakers are literally ignoring these changes, be it entitlements, transportation, education, or health care. Leaders in Washington and state houses often act like these changes just aren't happening or somehow they'll just go away. They won't. Business knows it. We know it. The question is, what do we do about it, and what happens if we ignore it? We're going to talk about these changes with my guest, Paul Taylor. He's the executive vice president of the Pew Research Center, and he's the author of a new book entitled The Next America, Boomers, Millennials, and the Looming Generational Showdown. Paul Taylor, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Great to be with you.
0: It's good to have you here. How far back do we have to look to find another period where we've seen as much demographic change and shift as we're seeing today, Paul?
1: You know, I'm not sure there is one. I I quote in the book, I quote uh, America's most astute early observer, uh, de Tocqueville, in the early 19th century, saying, in America, every generation is a new people. Certainly that's our history. We are all about change as a country uh, and when big things happen be they wars, be they migrations out west, be they the digital revolution that's going on now it, it stands to reason that generations have a different outlook um, on life from their parents or grandparents but there is a combination of two things happening now that is unprecedented, they're both unprecedented and one is we are becoming racially and ethnically a rainbow uh, nation uh, uh, in 1960 American population was 85% white. By 2060, we'll be 43% white. Uh, Californians don't need to know this story; they are living the story. And today's younger adults, the millennials, are a part of this story as well. They are the first generation in our history to be more than more, more than four in ten non-white. And if you look to the younger kids today, about half are non-white. So that's one big thing that's happening, and it's affecting uh, a lot of our politics. Uh, it's affecting a lot of our culture and, and our racial identity. Um, the second big thing that is happening are, are the, the famous, the baby boom generation famous for being very large, uh, born right after World War II. They had to build schoolhouses. I'm one of them, schoolhouses for us. We made a lot of noise in the 60s with the counterculture. Now, here we are now on the doorstep of old age, and 10,000 baby boomers uh, will turn 65 today, another 10,000 tomorrow. This goes on every single day until the year 2030, at which point we have about twice as many people collecting Social Security and Medicare, and the math just doesn't work. So as a society, we are going to have to, we're going to have to rewrite the compact between young and old at a time when young and old don't look alike, they don't think alike, and they don't vote alike. So this is a big challenge before us.
0: One of the things you talk about is how historically we have been all about change as a nation, and yet we seem to have more trouble today navigating, understanding, accepting that change than at almost any other time.
1: You know it, it, you you mentioned the, the ads, but uh, I open the book with an anecdote. Of, of, you know demographic change is hard to see It, it, it happens tick by tock in tiny increments, uh, and it happens all around us, but nobody calls a press conference, nobody uh, blows a bugle and say, "Hey, look, you know, our racial complexion is changing." I start the book with a revealing moment uh, on the, in, in November of 2012, the night of President Obama's reelection victory. It's on Fox TV. Carl Rove, the, the very, very smart Republican operative, is there as the guest commentator. Ohio has just fallen to Obama, and now the now the electoral votes are there. And Fox is all set to declare the election over. And Karl Rove, it's an unusual moment on live TV, okay. says uh, to the host of the show, "No, no, no, wait a minute. I know how Ohio. I know those precincts. There are still twenty or thirty percent of the precincts out. This thing isn't over yet." And. It was it was sort of an embarrassing moment, and she, uh, the host, led him down to the war room where they run all the numbers, and they assured Carl, "No, no, it's uh, it really is happening this way." Carl Rove knows what the country looks like. He looks at polling all the time. He looks at demographic data all the time, but he and a lot of other really smart Republican operatives couldn't quite get their minds around the fact that the demographics of the country is was such that it wasn't even wound up not even be a close election obama won by about 5 million votes fast forward to last month the the, uh, the those ads at the super bowl we, we know in the last 20 or 30 years the super bowl has kind of become a super bowl of advertising advertisers spend 4 million dollars for a 30 second spot Coca-Cola, Chevy, and Cheerios, the three of the most iconic American brands, all roll out new ads, and they, they are a portrait. We're accustomed to seeing TV ad families. Uh, we know that, that appeal. So here were the families that they portrayed, and one of them was an interracial couple. One of them was a same-sex set of parents, and one of the ads, the Coke ad, was America the Beautiful being sung in a half dozen different languages. These folks know that those ads they 're not in the business of making political statements they certainly at four million dollars uh, for a half a minute don 't want to make uh, political enemies but they too look at the numbers and they say America is changing I want to be associate my brand with a new America I actually think in a lot of quarters of society we are doing a very good job uh, of, of embracing the new America you know there you know uh, the societies I mean l- listen I have a whole chapter in a book about marriage right. uh, 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 you know, if you go back to when Barack Obama's parents were married in Hawaii in 1960 something on the order of magnitude of one marriage in 1,000 was across uh, white-black lines today, one marriage in six is, is across racial or ethnic lines uh, and that is changing who we are. What are we going to call the children of those marriages? Uh, if, what do we call Barack Obama? About half the country thinks he's mostly black. About half the country thinks, no, he's mostly mixed race. I, I think in terms of our adapting to the racial change, We're doing very well, I think, in terms of our adapting to the changing age structure. We're becoming a much older society. This is happening all over the world. There's a lot of good news here. People are living longer. It's just that our our great entitlement programs don't work anymore. We can see when when they become bankrupt, and the longer we wait for a solution, the deeper the hole it is, and the more the burden of the solution is on today's kids and tomorrow's kids, and that, from a moral point of view, seems wrong, and that bugs a lot of people of all ages.
0: Coming back in, in some ways to the Karl Rove point, where there seems to be this, if not resistance to change, at least unwillingness to embrace the change, is among policymakers.
1: Well, I think I think there are two issues. Uh, I think, frankly, the Republican Party in particular ha- has a problem with the next America. Uh, so if you add up all the votes uh, in 2012, the Republican Party got 17% of the non-white vote. And if you project forward, the non-white vote will be a majority of the country by mid-century. So this is why the Republican Party is going through something of a civil war right now. Uh, and they have to work this out. And they know it. I mean, they, they, they did a pretty brutal post-election autopsy you know, where there's a, the Republican leadership what went wrong here and they said too many people see us as a collection of stuffy old white guys um, that will play out because parties have to adapt to survive uh, the challenge of getting the the math of the entitlements program is a bipartisan challenge and you know we, we know how polarized and how toxic and how gridlocked our, our political system is these days uh, so you have all that and then on top of that the only solution to this problem frankly is a painful solution it's going to have to be some bit, a mix of, of benefit cuts and tax increases uh, presumably you protect the most vulnerable the two parties have different ideas out of how to do this but the one thing that they have a bipartisan consensus on is i don't want to do it because it's politically painful and if i do it as a member of congress I'll, I'll get hurt by it so what you really need is a consensus to build throughout society in the business community among people of goodwill to say look we don't want to screw our kids here and that's what's going on uh, and the hope that this book And one of my hopes with this book is you put the numbers out there, more and more people say, look, let's not wait till a crisis forces a solution here, because at that point, the solutions are much worse than they are today.
0: Is part of the problem that we're not seeing a sufficient number of millennials yet in policy positions, in positions within government, within corporations, within various other aspects of society from the grassroots level on up, where they're looking at, the way America's changing and their role in it.
1: Well, I would say perhaps that's part of the problem. I think that's sort of par for the course. Again, most millennials are now in their 20s. Some of them are, are now up into their early 30s. That's generally not a stage of life where you, you emerge and take leadership roles in various key institutions of society. But let me say, that problem will take care of itself. So millennials, were, they were 18% of all voters in, in 2012. They were 26% of the age-eligible electorate in 2000 and 12 by 2020 just six years from now they will be 38 percent of the age eligible electorate so they are aging into the electorate they are aging into the workforce and they will surely age into leadership positions um uh, and they, listen, we did a survey on this just a couple of weeks ago. We asked millennials, do you think Social Security will be there for you? Uh, 50% say there will be absolutely nothing for them. Another 40% say, well, yes, but that reduced rates. And literally 6% say, yes, I think by the time I retire, I'll get Social Security at the equivalent of current level. So they absolutely understand there's a problem. And my guess is they will be a big part of the solution as they, as they assume uh, a more important role in the electorate and in leadership.
0: What impact is this demographic change, this demographic churn? What impact is it having on social cohesion as a whole? What are you finding in that regard?
1: I think it's a really big challenge, and I, I would say with entitlements that uh, Social Security and Medicare are the, the most popular and most successful programs that the government has, has e- ever put in place. They, they're, they, they, do, they draw more taxes than any other program. They put out more benefits than any other program. They relieve more poverty than any other program, and 90% of the public thinks they are good. Another reason they are good is because more than any other program, they, they embody the idea that as a nation, we are all in this together and that, and that we help each other. We care for each other. That's why we built these safety nets in the first place. The the challenge is to keep that spirit going at a time when young and old don't look, think, or vote alike. And and in addition to the different racial and ethnic profiles that young and old have, among the old oldest generation, about eighty percent are white. Again, again, among the youngest, uh, only about fifty percent are white, uh, and and they have very different political attitudes as well. The young are more liberal; the older, are more conservative. Uh, so this is a real challenge for our political and social cohesion. The le- the le- is it, Frankly, the last thing we want is a generation war over this. To the extent that there's a grace note in the book, it's based on a lot of data that says young and old are not spoiling for a fight over this. Mm -hmm. The young have a great... I mean, I speak now as a boomer. I came of age in the 60s. Where there was a lot of social upheaval, there was a feminist movement, uh, a civil rights movement, anti-war movement, a counterculture movement, and there was a lot of sort of the, my generation saying to our parents and grandparents, boy, well, you screwed everything up. We're, we're here to make it right. Today's generation of young adults, arguably has been given a much much more difficult hand economically than the boomers ever were but they are not pointing a finger of blame at at their parents or grandparents one of the reasons is they're living with their grandparents and and their parents they're boomerang back home because they can't get started so it's they're living there for economic reasons but frankly the generations are getting along within families just fine Uh, we ask people of all ages who has the best moral values young or old about eighty percent of millennials say old so I, there's not the basis here for an all-out generation war. Uh, there is a great deal of aggravation and frustration about how gridlocked the political system is to take on some of the difficult challenges. But if we just rely on the wisdom and the pragmatism of the American public, uh, we'll find a way to solve this problem.
0: In many ways, the, the situation here in the U.S. seems so much more complex, a kind of perfect storm of changes taking place. When we look at the rest of the world And you talk about this at various points in the book. We certainly see the European population changing. We see demographic change there. The Japanese population in terms of it aging. That's a a very dramatic change. We have all of this going on at the same time that we have, as you've been talking about, the very face of the country itself looking different.
1: Well that's right but but the the reason that the face of the country looks so different is our modern immigration wave uh, which began in the 1960s uh, after a long hiatus through much of the middle of the 20th century we opened our doors back up uh, the modern immigration wave is led by Hispanics and Asians and that's the reason that our, our our racial and ethnic profile is changing so much but if you think about uh who the immigrants are uh and uh, uh, they are they are a large part of the potential solution to some of the age driven problems the, it's the immigrants who are actually keeping us relatively speaking younger than a lot of other populations in the world immigrants tend to come when they're in, in their 20s and 30s uh, they are hard workers they, they believe in the future they have a lot of kids uh and that is actually, from a straight numbers point of view, that is a savior for this country in the 21st century. So it creates a complication, perhaps, on the racial and ethnic front, although it's not complicated to young adults today. These are the kids they've all grown up with. Their notion of the racial profile of the country is, of course, it's a rainbow. I think for older adults, it is more challenging to adjust to. But in, but uh, you know you you mentioned Japan. Japan is, has never been open to immigration, and Japan is on its way to being far and away the oldest country in human history. Uh, we have big debt problems because of our age structure. Our debt is about uh, our federal debt is about 100 percent of GDP. Japan's is 200 percent of GDP. There are a lot of other reasons for that. But age, age and the lack of immigration is a part of it. So and that's, in that sense, immigration is uh, very much on uh, the plus column.
0: One of the things you talk about, and, and you emphasize repeatedly, is that the, it doesn't seem that the generations are spoiling for a fight. That certainly seems to be true. Is that surprising? Why not?
1: Well, I think, again, to a boomer who remembers the, the, our attitude, never <laughs> trust anybody over 30, was one of the rallying cries of the young adults who came of age in the 60s. So whether it's surprising or not, it's certainly different. Uh, I, I think that I've read a lot of theories. I don't want to stretch my own credentials. I think it is fair to say of today's kids and today's young adults, they were raised with a, a kind of very nurturing set of parental norms, perhaps a response to sort of, Uh, The dangerous world phenomena, uh, global terrorism, uh, the the Internet has got all sorts of uh, perils out there, so you have, I think they were raised with parents uh, of a view that my child is very special, my child needs protection. Uh, and it may then have led to this sort of era of good feelings. I mean, you have a lot of uh, young adults in their 20s and 30s who have kind of migrated from being their parents' children to their parents' roommates. I mean, we have a, you know, something like 40% of, of young adults in their 20s and 30s are e- either currently or at some point have boomerang back home to live with mom and dad. If you can't, can't find that first job, if you can't get started, you know, that's a place where the refrigerator is stocked and uh, you don't have to put coins in the washing machine Uh, and by and large when we ask people living in those circumstances you feel a little stigmatized you feel a little bad about it most people say, no no, i'm sort of cool with it it's it's not forever but this is a good place to hang out until i can get started
0: is some of the polarization we see today a direct result of, of some of this demographic change
1: Oh, I think so. I, I mean, I think, I, I think there are a lot of things that go into the political polarization, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of uh, a theory that uh, called the big sort, that, that for a variety of reasons over the last several decades, it's not that the American public has gotten more extreme in its attitudes, and we do a lot of public opinion surveys, so I'm able to say that on the basis of, uh, of a lot of data we look at. But what has happened over the last 20, 30 years or so is that uh, uh, Democrats... people have tended to move to to communities where there are like-minded people, so uh, uh, Democrats live more so than in the past among Democrats, Republicans live among Republicans, that then creates a Congress where uh, if you're a member of Congress, your incentives are not so much to strike deals across the aisle, your big political worry is somebody from your left flank or right flank is going to challenge you in a primary, so you have a Congress that in some ways represents the, the the poles of American political opinion. You have a public that, by and large, uh, is in the pragmatic middle where the American public always has. Americans, by and large, are not a terribly ideological people. We have differences, to be sure, always have. But the thing we want to do more than anything else is put one foot in front of another and solve problems.
0: We've talked about the millennials on one hand and the boomers on the other. Although they're a smaller generation, where did the Gen Xers fit into all of this?
1: Well, one reason they tend to get a little bit neglected, and I, I guess I, I'm guilty of that as anybody, is is numerically they are a smaller generation. They're sometimes called the baby bust generation. Uh, they are now in their uh, late 30s, uh, you know, mid to late 30s, up through almost 50 now, the oldest of them. In many ways, they're a transitional uh, generation when we look at their social and political attitudes. They're sort of halfway between the more conservative older folks and the, and the more liberal younger folks. They're also at a stage of life now where they're beginning getting to worry about their own retirement uh, uh, you know here you are in your 40s uh, presumably you've settled in you've had a family uh, you, you know you're worried about having enough money to get your kids uh, through college uh, and you haven't had enough time uh, to take advantage or enough money to take advantage of uh, some of the 401ks and IRAs that have been part of their uh, of their retirement those opportunities have been there but we, we know the numbers uh, they haven't been able to fully take advantage of that um, so uh, they're in a tough sort of middle passage in life uh, and uh, feeling financially
0: fragile. And, and because a lot of them are beginning to move into leadership positions, what role do you see them playing, if any, in, in bridging some of these divides we've been talking about?
1: Well, I'm not, I mean, uh, I uh, I would be wary of making those predictions. I think if you think about our political system at the moment and you think about who's moving into leadership positions, uh, you do find this pattern of uh, appealing to the wings. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I think our political parties, certainly Congress, uh, you know, there are a lot of incentives, uh, you know, not to strike pragmatic compromise, but to lay out somewhat ideologically driven positions and the result of that for the last two congresses now we've we've had less legislation coming out than any uh you know according to some calculations any in our history There's just a sense of gridlock there's a sense that there are big challenges mounting but our Political system isn't finding a way to solve them. Um, So I I don't, you know, my guess is that logjam breaks eventually. Uh, I don't know whether it takes an external event to force it back open. Uh, Maybe it's the weight of some of these challenges around the entitlement programs, but uh, I would, uh, I'm not ready to predict that the the Xers or any generation, you know, uh, is going to produce the leadership to solve it. I think something in the the mix of how we do our politics uh, will have to drive change.
0: What is the role that, that you have found in your research? What is the role of technology, if any, in creating some of these divides and differences between particularly between the boomers and the millennials?
1: Well, I tell you the the technology it, it, it's such a fascinating story, and uh, you know my guess is a hundred years from now, five hundred years from now, when historians look back on this period we 're living through, it will be the era of the digital revolution these amazing technologies that are really only fifteen or twenty years old that have fundamentally transformed how we acquire information and how we uh, how we communicate with people and and the networks that we form and it is the millennials who are the digital natives they're the only generation that hasn't had to adapt to these new technologies. They're all they've ever known. So, for example, we we came out with a report last week profiling millennials, and we found... We started with some of the anchor institutions of a traditional society, the society that someone my age is familiar with, and we find that, in terms of attachment to political parties, attachment to organized religion, attachment to marriage, millennials are in a much much different place than older adults were are today, and even than older adults were when they were the same age. So, 50 percent of millennials uh, are are politically independent. It's not that they don't have political opinions, and and they actually lean very uh, democratic in, in their voting patterns and in their views, but they don't choose to affiliate with a party. Same thing when we ask about religion. About three in ten say, no, I have no religious affiliation. We've never had a generation like that, so unaffiliated. Same thing with marriage. Uh, today, only about one in four millennials are married. If you go back a uh, generation before, the older folks, when they were that age, it was, it was more than half, and the grandparents' generation, is about two-thirds, were already married. So they are not, they are not attaching themselves to the traditional anchor institution of society what then are they doing well they are using this little thing they hold in their hand uh, to create their own networks of, of friends uh, associates uh, people who have similar interests and so the typical millennial is on Facebook and he or she has 250 friends and that's that's quintuple the number of older adults and and so they a colleague here calls them networked individuals they're able to create their own networks and they build them from those from those sites and uh, we, we have We have a finding about selfies i mean it, it 's one of the things that this network this form of of interaction allows you to do is you can put yourself at the center of the network because you 've created it or, or you you've picked which ones you want to be a part of, so the whole set of behaviors around taking pictures of yourself and and sharing them with your friends. Uh, now, people have been taking pictures of themselves since the beginning of time, or the, but but the notion of then sharing it uh, has ramped it up to a certain, different sort of activity. It had a uh, had a big moment at the Oscars a few weeks ago, um, but this is something millennials do a lot of, and older folks are sort of puzzled by it. In fact, we asked older folks, uh, we, we asked adults of all ages. Uh, this is about a week before that that Oscar night. Do you know what a selfie is? The selfie was the Oxford Dictionary's word of well, the year in two thousand and thirteen. So right? It, it achieves some cultural cachet. Only about a third of older adults even knows what a selfie is, and only about four or five percent have taken one. So, I, you know, does this mean that today's young adults, as they grow older, will continue to be uh, distanced from traditional anchor institutions, and 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 they will they will create their worlds online, or will as eventually they marry, settle down, buy houses, will they begin to look more like older adults? I don't know the answer to that question, but I think. It's it's a really interesting one.
0: Or perhaps create new kinds of institutions that, that accomplish similar things. They, they may be political and spiritual and all those other things, but they may do it, as, as you're saying, as we're starting to see now within the context of technology, in whole new kinds of institutions. I think
1: I think that's that's exactly right. But you know, the skeptics would say, and I was at a conference around philanthropy in young adults, and and uh, you know, there's a phrase I hadn't been familiar with called slacktivism. And and uh, are young adults active in causes? Yes, but but in some ways, if being active is just two clicks, you know, when there's a when there's an earthquake or a tsunami, and do you want to give five dollars and just text this, click click done. Uh, that is a form of activism, but it may not be as deep a form as, as with some of the traditional anchors. Again, I, I don't think we know the end of this story, but I think it's a really important question.
0: Do we learn anything, and is there any data on, on although it may not have a name yet, the next generation that, that's coming along? Mm-hmm. It's starting to be, what, 12, 13, 14 years old at this point?
1: Yeah, it's really hard. Uh, you're right. I mean, people who study these things generally assume generations last about 20 years. So the oldest millennials are approaching mid-30s. So presumably there are, as you say, 12- and 13-year-olds out there who are going to be given a different generational tag. No one has come, come up with a name yet. We, we actually have something on our website where we invite people to come up with names. And a lot of them go on this notion of selfie. A lot of them go on this notion of how much time they spend in front of a screen of one kind or another, um, but but in truth, uh, generations don't tend to get labeled until the oldest of them is either late teens or early 20s, because uh, because that is when your worldview begins to be formed, that is when you have outlets to express yourself and give your generation an identity, so uh, there's another one coming, we're not quite sure who they are or what to call them.
0: It's interesting when we talk about the breakdown and the change in traditional institutions, the one that, that we left out and the one Also, that is going to have to adapt is the institution of government and and the citizenship that goes along with it.
1: I think that's right. And I think, listen, like any, like any big institution, whether it's a commercial entity, a nonprofit entity, or a government, uh, you know, the way it it intersects with people, the way it communicates with people, of course, has changed massively. And, you know, we had, uh, you know, famously or infamously over the last several months, you had the huge rollout of the Affordable Care Act, and you had all those problems with those websites, and that was, you know, that that was an embarrassing moment. A lot of, you know, a, a lot of the commentary I'm no, expert on this said, boy, they were doing a very complicated thing, and in the, if you did it in the private sector, you would have known to have beta testing and this and that and the other. But this is this is the way we interact with each other now. And in many ways, it, it's enormously efficient. Um, you can accomplish a whole lot. Uh, you certainly don't want there to be bugs in the system, and people have absolutely no patience when the system doesn't work. Uh, but again, this question of, does it fully replace, you know, eyeball-to-eyeball, eyeball, you know, real human interaction I, I i just you know I, I don't know the answer to that um my guess is the hu- human beings always want some sort of direct personal interaction uh, and my guess is that's true of government and all the ways that government inter- intersects with people
0: paul taylor the book is the next america boomers millennials and the looming generational showdown paul i thank you so much for spending time with us today
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.